0: Um, guy, we talked about that last week, but he says the law is a mirror, right? And God's, um, God's word as a seed is, is planted in us, and that seed grows and out pops a mirror, right? And you and I have a mirror that's part of us um, because the Spirit writes the word of God in our hearts, but we have that mirror, and James says you need to look in the mirror all the time. Um, And don't forget who you are. Don't forget your need of Christ. That's what I told the the graduates. Um, You need Jesus every day. And we will need Him forever and ever and ever. Even when we don't ever sin again, we will still need Jesus. We're built to have a relationship with Him. But the law is a mirror, and and it shows us our sin, but it also leads us to Christ. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But in this passage, um, James calls the law... The royal law. Did you notice that? And he calls the law the law of freedom, the royal law, and the law of freedom. He's a metaphorical guy. You got to, just like the rest of the the writers of the New Testament. Now there's a, you know, there's a lot of confusion when you talk about the law of God. Um, and its role in the life of the Christian, its, its role in your life, the Old Testament especially, you know, what does it have to do with me, right? The role of the law in my life, it causes a lot, it's always caused a lot of confusion. If you go back and look at church history, if you look in the Bible, uh, it starts off, uh, people are confused about about how the law applies to their life. This is nothing new, nothing new under the sun. So this morning, in, in, in an attempt to help you to see the role of God, God's law in your life, we're going to talk about, we're going to answer two questions. We're going to ask, why is the law the royal law? Why is it a royal law? And secondly, why is it? Why is the law of God a law of liberty, a law of of freedom. Why is the law of God the royal law? Why is the the law of God the law of liberty? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have written your word on our hearts. Thank you that that word in the hands of the Spirit always leads us to a good place uh, in the presence of your Son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that The law, uh, this is your law, the law of Christ, as the apostle has has named the law, the law of Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you pray for us as we look in your law. Thank you that you're praying for me right now. And I pray that you would move in me and you would move into the hearts of my brothers and sisters, my friends here, that that you would glorify yourself um, through the preaching of your word. Uh, give us grace we pray this in your name amen look at verse eight if you if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well that's where John or excuse me James uses this phrase this um, metaphor for the the law of god the royal law uh, what does he so what does he mean what is James talking about when he calls God's law the royal law? What is that? Well, verse 8, and I should have printed, I didn't, didn't do this. I should have printed the more scripture. That's why I like to just print it all in there because I inevitably leave something out important. But um, verse 8 is connected to what James says earlier in verse 5. And, and you really don't see that connection. Clearly in English, um, I suppose, you know, you guys, most of y'all are smarter than I am. You probably could make that connection. But there um, is a definite connecting theme in his thought uh, as as he writes this section. He is using royal language. Uh, and verse 5 says, believers are, and this is why, believers are rich in faith and heirs. Rich in faith. You can preach a whole sermon on that. Rich in faith and heirs. Of God's kingdom, there's your theme. That's the connecting theme. Heirs of God's kingdom, kingdom getting it's starting to make sense. Kingdom, royalty, monarchy, right, sovereign rule. Uh, this is that's the theme. And to understand uh, more about what what James is thinking, we we need to do a very brief word study. It's just it's just language. There's nothing magic about this. Um, but we need to look uh, at, a, at a very brief word study to, to understand the connection that James is making in his mind. The word for kingdom in verse 5 is the word basileia. I'm not trying to impress you with all the Greek stuff I know. I'm just telling you what words are. You know, like adios means something in Spanish, right? Hola, I'm learning more and more Spanish. This is just a language, right? Basileia, you may have heard of that, means kingdom. We get the word basilica. From that, you know what a basilica is. It's a basilica is a a big honker building, a big royal government building. Um, uh, Basilea is a kingdom. Basilica is a royal building, and you always have royal buildings in a kingdom, don't you? Right. Even in the Kingdom of Aniston, we've got a brand new royal building, don't we, down there on Gurney. It's a beautiful building. I've watched it go up. I even used it as an illustration when I went to Kenya. Took pictures of it under construction to try. This is, you know, God's forming you just like he's forming this building. That was the lesson. But I had, you know, my PowerPoint going and all that stuff. But there's more. The word for king is basalus. You hear the... The sounds, basalus. And that word is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. That's pretty impressive. And we don't talk about king kings very often. That's not in our world. But in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, that was a very, very important term. Very important title. It's an important title in the Bible. And in in Revelation, the word basalus... Is used several times. And the most important place, and pay attention, this is good, is where Jesus is called the Basileus Basileon. What does that mean? I bet you can figure that out. Basileon is the plural for Basileus. So it means kings, right? And Basileus is king. So you got king and kings next to each other. You have to supply. The preposition, what does it say? What does John say? Jesus is king of kings. Now, think about that title for just a second before you just blow through there. Um, That's some kind of royalty. Would you not agree? King of kings. There's been a lot of kings throughout the history of the world. All right, But he, Jesus, is king of kings. And here's where you go back. Here's where you make the connection to the royal law of verse 8. Thank you for your patience. The word we translate royal, you know, there's different translations of that in different English versions. But it's bascalon. Which sounds a lot like those other kingly words that we just, you know, went through and all that exciting word study that we just did. And so James is saying that the law of God, the law of the king of kings, all he's saying is that it is a royal law. And that, that makes sense, right? If Jesus is the king of kings, his law is going to be the royal law. There's nothing like it. His, king, his law is royal. And, and that means that, that God's law is, is not like any law of man. You know, God's law is not like the Constitution of the United States. It's, that's a good document. Um, our officers in the police department, our mili- when you join the, go in the military, you pledge um, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's a, that's a good thing. But God's law is, is greater than the Constitution. God's law is greater than any state law. It's greater than any county law. And we should expect that. Um, we should expect God's law, because it's the law of the king of kings, it should be greater than any of the laws given throughout the history of the world. But here's the real reason why it's greater, um, that that it's a royal law. It's because the law is a reflection of God's heart. God shows us in His law what He's like. What His heart is like. So what is God's heart like? What is it? What, What do we know about the Lord God. Well, in short, we play that that um, game a lot. If in one word, if you could sum up, right? I'm using that. If if you could sum up your relationship with Jesus Christ in one word, I think that's a good exercise. It makes people think. Well, you know, the word is union, right? That's Paul's word. He uses that all the time. That that concept over 130 times. Um, one, if you could sum up your life as a Christian, your relationship with Jesus Christ in one word, it would be union. Jesus has united his heart to you, to himself. He lives in you. Wow. You really believe that? Jesus lives in... Yes, he does. So we forget that, don't we? But the one word that you would use... I don't know. Maybe there are lots of words. But in this passage, for this sermon, the one word that would show you the heart of God... In his royal law, is that God's heart is full of righteousness. And that means that God always does the right thing. Always. And that's been going on forever. God is one God in three persons. And from all eternity, each member of the Trinity has honored and preferred uh, the other members of the Godhead over themselves. That's, That's been going on forever. They have acted in righteousness towards one another from all eternity. They've lived out the royal law, their royal law, among themselves forever. They've been eternal neighbors in an eternal community of righteousness forever. They are righteous in all their ways. And that word is, is another important word. I'm not going to get off into a lot of this. But you know, when we think about righteousness, we think about a status. We are, we've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the gospel, no question. That's justification. God declares us righteous. We are not. He forgives our sins and he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he declares us to be righteous. But righteousness in the scripture, if you look at it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's also an active relational word. God acts towards the people he loves within the Trinity, and He acts righteously towards you all the time. All the time. God is righteous in all His ways. Now, no question, God's ways are inexplicable. His thoughts are above your thoughts, my thoughts. His ways are above your ways, my ways. But there's one thing you know about Him. You know what his heart is like. His heart is a heart of righteousness. He always does the right thing. There is no wickedness in him. And his law, his royal law is righteous, it's holy, and it's good. That's what the apostle says in Romans chapter 7. And God gives us this righteous law. Why does he give it to you? Why does he reveal it to you? So your heart will reflect his heart in the world. That's the way it has been from the beginning of time in, in this world. God's plan was for us to reflect His glory, His heart, His image into the world. And that's the way it's going to be in the new heavens and the, and the new earth. You know, we were made in God's image. And one day, and as we are being remade in the image of Christ, one day we will perfectly reflect His heart in the world. And what, as um, Louis Armstrong which sang "What a Wonderful World"? <laughs> right? It will be a wonderful world. What wasn't a very good Louis Armstrong impersonation? But I get my get my handkerchief up here. Might help me help me next time. But uh, James says. Uh, We are made in God's image. We will reflect. God means for us to reflect the royal law in his heart. That's that's the main thrust of his book. Um, But he says also in verse 8 that primarily the way that God's heart shows up in you and in me is that we, the royal law in our hearts is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So basically, what James is saying and what he says throughout the book is that to be made in God's image means that we... It's primarily a a matter of righteousness and morality. Uh, And as image bearers, uh, to thrive with God in this life, to live the life that is truly life, we must follow his royal ways. The righteous king wants you... To obey his law so that you will be like him. And let me say this again. Here's the bottom line. When we don't follow God's law, we basically are betraying the very image of God. That's why I put that in the call to worship today. You need to be reminded. You are, have been made in the image of God. And you are meant to thrive and live as you, in his power as you live out His royal law. You know, we talk about disobedience, we use that word, nothing wrong with that word. Um, But we need to talk about, need to think about disobedience as disimaging. Because when we sin, yes, we're not living the way God wants us to live, we don't thrive, but ultimately we are betraying our identity in Christ as He remakes us into the image of his son god made us in his sons and daughters and you and me whether you realize it or not your royalty as a son as a daughter jesus has given you the kingdom and we should reflect his image in the world and so god's law is the royal law because it reflects the the heart of the king of kings that's the first point Uh, The law is the way of true life for those who are made in the image of God. That's you and me. We are His children. We are empowered by the Spirit. So we need to look in the mirror and see, okay, how am I reflecting the image of God in the world around me? But secondly, James says this. He says, speak and act as those, in verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so the question is, why does James switch the metaphor from royal law to the law of liberty or freedom? Why why does he do that? Why does he also call the royal law the law of freedom? Why does he do that? Well, in Galatians, Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You remember that—that's a favorite verse of many of many of you. And Paul is using the same exact word for freedom that James is using, and, and freedom in the Jewish mind uh, was was especially important because. The Jewish folks, because of the Exodus, their ancestors had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and the Exodus event became the metaphor for the apostles to speak about um, the freedom—the freedom we have in Christ. It's literal, literal slavery in in Egypt, but the Exodus becomes a metaphor for our slavery to sin, and the one greater than Moses has come to save us from our sins, to free us from our sins. And Paul, he takes it to the spiritual level all the time. He talks about sin and slavery, and he says we are no longer slaves of sin and so forth. He says we are free in Christ. And we know we are free. How do you know you're free? Because Jesus, the King of kings... Is the source of your freedom. Jesus has conquered your enemies and my enemies. He conquered sin and death through His life, death, and resurrection. But to help us again, we're talking about the role of the, the the law and the royal law in our lives. But to help us understand more about what that means, Paul gives us a metaphor to help us to understand the purpose of the law. Put it in the um, the bulletin. Uh, it's, it's one of those verses that, if you're not. Um, you know, I don't proof text everything I say. I, I just talk about the scripture. But this is one of those proof text things. You need to go back and look at this because it's so vital to your understanding of what the law means in your life as a Christian. It's, it's Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Three twenty-four. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You've got to get that. I've got to get that. I forget that so many times. Um, and and you, most of you, I, I really hope that some of you—I don't—you wouldn't roll your eyes literally, but in your hearts, you may be. Hey, I know what you're about to say. Um, I have, you know, you've taught this. I get it. Um, you know, why are we doing this again? Well, you know. Repetition is the mother of learning. So, if you need, you probably need to hear this again. But some of you are here have probably have never heard this. But here's what Paul is saying in this metaphor. Literally, he says the law is a guardian, a guardian that leads us to Christ. And if you compare this version, that translation to the the King James, King James is a, I not here to say that's not a good translation. I'm just saying that there's over time you realize that. 324 and the King James is probably not the way it should be translated. Okay, I'm just saying that, all right? And you ought to look at the ESV or the NIV or the NAS um, because they're better I, with the historical studies of words and so forth and all the stuff that Bible scholars do. It's better to say the law is a guardian. Um, and when Paul says guardian, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a different word. In our minds, right? A guard, what does a guardian do? In that day, in Paul's day, a guardian was a servant who protected a child on his way to school. Yeah, they had schools back then, right? Maybe they were school bus drivers, I don't know. Y'all waking up? Hello. But he's, he's a guardian who protects a child, child on the way to school. In other words, the guardian made sure the child got to his teacher. That was what the guardian did. And the Holy Spirit uses the law. How does the Spirit use the law of God? Yes, to convict us of our sins. We pull up the mirror. Okay, well, yeah. He does that. But he doesn't stop there. When we don't keep the royal law, we realize it. The Spirit lets us know. Right? In his gentleness and his wooing and his comforting and his counseling, the way he is as the sweet spirit of life. But at the same time, and here's the good news, he takes us to our true teacher. He takes us to the one who says, I have paid for your sins. He always does that. He takes us to the one who says, I am full of mercy you are forgiven he takes us to the one who says I will never ever cast you out if some of you are sitting here today and you think I've, just, I've done it again I've just struggled with this this is a pattern in my life you need to hear what Jesus says I will never ever cast you out I won't cast you out you believe by faith you believe in the words of Christ He says, come to me and you will find rest for your soul. He says, you will be free. Your heart will be free if you come to me. Some of those of you who have been hearing um, this old... Redneck from South Georgia, preached for 20 years. Tell me if you've heard this story before, but um, I'm sure some of you have, but I don't know that I've told this story, because it's, it's a little, it's not sketchy, it's just, um, I'm just, um, I'm a stuffy old Presbyterian, right, and I, uh, and this, kind of, you know, when I heard this first time, I was in shock. Um, now, I've got your attention now, right? Everybody woke up. They're paying attention to the sermon. But um, anyway, I heard this, this uh, story from Simon Kistermacher, um, who was a Greek scholar, taught at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was, I mean, this guy was a heavy hitter in Bible studies. He, he's with the Lord today. But he was on the um, translation team for the 1984 version of the NIV. So this guy knows his languages, and he's, you know, he's a Dutch guy. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And he was a great theologian, great teacher, influenced tons of people. Um, then went to RTS and all over the world and so forth. But anyway, I've just introduced that to give him credibility. So, And Simon Kistemacher was kind of stuffy too he's presbyterian we're all stuffy right and um and basically what that means is in our minds we we are real careful about talking about how god works right we have to be very careful it's the, he speaks to us through the word of god we don't hear his audible voice all those things you know blah 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 we're real careful about that and um sometimes to our own detriment but anyway this is the story um dr Kistemaker uh, had a friend who was a pastor and he um a man in his congregation um, was, I'm not sure what happened to him, but he was in a coma. And, uh, and it was a, in a coma for weeks. And this pastor would go to um, the hospital and um, just stand there. The man's name was Joe. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, Joe's not here today. Sorry, Joe. Maybe you're listening on the, on the feed. But anyway, so Joe was in a coma and um, this pastor would go and just stand at his bed and pray for him. And um, he just would do that. Was doing that for several weeks. And um, but he was going to visit a parishioner who had surgery, and he was in the hospital that day. And he said, I just need to go see Joe. And um, I don't really, you know, ah, come on. I'm going to go visit Susie or whatever. And but, but he said, ah, I he went to see Joe. You know, same thing. Walks in the room, and as he walks in that day, Joe sat up and Joe said I just saw Jesus. And the pastor, you know, stuffy old Presbyterian guy. <laughs> well, what did he say? He said, "I paid for you." And Joe died right then. Again, the context. That sounds kind of other world, otherworldly, doesn't it? Right? Does God really work like that? Oh man. I, I believe the story because Simon Kistemacher is a credible man who loves Christ and followed His royal law. Um, but you know what? When the Spirit convicts you of your sin and He will this week in a sweet way But you can hear the voice of Christ from His Word every day saying the same thing that Joe said Jesus said. From the Word of God, Jesus is always saying the same thing. I paid for you. You are mine. It's what Grant pointed out last week. You belong to Jesus, body and soul. The way the catechism starts and the way it ends. We belong to Jesus. He paid for us. We we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. In other words, the Spirit will show you how you fall short of God's glory, but at the same time, the Spirit always leads you to Jesus. And when He uses that royal law to take you to your Savior, the the end result is always the same. You will always experience Mercy. And forgiveness. Again and again and again and again. And you will become, just like the Exodus people, the people of God in the Exodus, you will become free. And you will not just be free from the penalty of sin. You will be more and more free. You will learn to live in the freedom from the power of sin in your life. And, you know, we've heard that all of our lives in the church. We're saved from the penalty. We are being saved from the power of sin. But let me ask you a question Do you know what sin's greatest power is? That it hammers you with and me with all the time? What do you think it is? Hmm. Sin's greatest power is condemnation. And some of you feel condemned in this room. Again, just things that you're struggling with that you can't seem to shake and so forth. If you're struggling, go ask Jesus to help you. Lord, help me. Free me. Help me. Help me. He answers prayers like that. He answers the prayers of a humble heart. So... You and I can live in freedom of condemnation. That doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again, but it does mean that when you do, you won't be paralyzed by your sin. Because I guarantee you, you're going to sin before the day's over. I am too. Call Catherine at 10 o'clock. Hey, did he make it or not? No, she'll tell you, he didn't make it. He didn't make it, right? You will still sin, but you won't be paralyzed your sin and the condemnation that Satan brings to your door. You're going to be like Paul. Remember all that anguish in his heart in Romans 7, right? What does he say? He says, the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do those are the very things that I do. That's the Christian life. And you can't read that verse The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. You can't read it like that. There's angst in that verse. Paul is saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And that is the angst, that's the tension in the human heart. The tension in the life of the Christian. We don't like tension. I don't like tension any more than you do. But but there's also relief. Where does the relief from Romans 7 come? It comes from Romans chapter 8. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, when the Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit, yes, the Spirit convicts you of sin gently and with compassion and angst and grief. Yeah, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but He always leads you to Christ. Leads you to Christ. He he loves to do that. And Jesus loves for you to come in your struggles when you don't obey the royal law of God. You know, those in Christ Jesus. You know, that is, that is those in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ, that's that's you and me. That's one of the most beautiful things Paul ever says. And he's talking about union with Christ. He's saying that Jesus is the source of true freedom because he has joined his heart to you. And that means you are free In Him, there is no condemnation. I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I believe there is no condemnation. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so when you struggle with sin, confess your sins. We do that. It's part of our life. Renewal is a way of life. It's part of renewal is to confess our sins. But remember, the cross has set you free from any condemnation. There is, how much? There is no condemnation. Zero. Nada. Zilch. In the words of the soup Nazi, no condemnation for you. You know who the soup Nazi is. If you don't ask me, I'll tell you. But there is no condemnation for you, you are free. You're free from guilt, so live in your freedom. And being free doesn't just mean there's no condemnation. It also means that since you're in Christ, your heart is joined to Him. You're free to pay more and more and more attention to the royal law that gives freedom. In the power of Christ, you're learning to follow the Lord and love the royal law of God. And you will reflect God's heart more and more, again, in the power of the Spirit, and the power of Christ you will reflect his character more and more and more in the world. So how do you do that more than anything? What I tell Derek and Deanna last night, i have been married 40 years. And before I got married, I had an older gentleman tell me the most important thing about being married is, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is an expression, great, the greatest expression of love. You're showing mercy to that person who has offended you, right? And that's why James says here, mercy triumphs over judgment. And all of this is possible because Jesus Christ lives in your heart through faith. And he's conforming you to his image. Of He is the free king. And he wants us to enjoy that freedom, his free life, a life of love. And a life of forgiveness. The law of God is the royal law. That in the hands of the Holy Spirit always brings freedom. Come to this table. Strengthen your union with Christ through faith. Repent and believe the gospel. That there is, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Let us pray.